Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. This episode is part two of my conversation on infrastructure with Craig Lawrence, Managing Director of Lytton Advisory. Lytton Advisory is a Brisbane-based economic consulting firm. Craig has three decades of experience as a professional economist and has advised on a wide range of infrastructure projects in Australia, the Pacific and the Middle East. I hope you enjoy part two of our conversation in which, among other things, we talk about public-private partnerships or PPPs, their pros and their cons. The discussion is wide-ranging and we touch on the geopolitics of infrastructure, for instance. The Port of Darwin, which has been leased out for 99 years to a Chinese company, is mentioned. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Craig, would you be able to explain in broad terms, what we mean by a public-private partnership and in what cases is it, as a, is it appropriate and what cases should we look at other types of uh, other ways of delivering infrastructure? Yeah, I, I think it's important to see that a public-private partnership is really uh, at its heart a, a form of a funding mechanism mm. for an infrastructure project. And it's really important to separate out the investment and the financing decision on infrastructure. Yes. Uh, there's, there's, one, there's one decision to make, which is, does an investment in this asset make sense? In other words, mm. irrespective of who provides the funding, if we expend economic resources, draw resources from other parts of the economy to build this infrastructure and operate it, do we expect that the benefits that accrue to the economy are going to be greater in present value terms than the, the costs where we're drawing resources from else, elsewhere to be able to do it? Then the second thing is who is able to actually provide the, the hard dollars that are needed? And the hard dollars are, are often uh, a significant part but not the total cost of the project. A lot of these projects have have uh, negative externalities, which are costs, and often they don't actually formally materialise as hard dollar impacts. They might come about as travel time delays, for example, you know, if you underinvest in road road infrastructure. So, a public private partnership is about creating a commercial opportunity for a private investor to commit funds to work an infrastructure asset. And often that's around providing the capital to build the infrastructure and then being given a concession to take the revenue from it. And what we've seen in the past has been a lot of toll roads in Australia have been funded uh, that way. Yeah. And um, one of the big challenges is you have information asymmetry between the parties in that on the government side, the government has the resources to get the kind of advice that it needs to be able to understand the commercial interests, but it's not actually a commercial 
player in its the way that that's institutionally set up. So in the past, a number of, of governments haven't really understood what all the commercial issues are when they've gone to, to do a deal. And similarly, on the private side, private providers of infrastructure often don't look to the wider economic uh, impacts of the uh, infrastructure project. They're focused solely on returns to shareholders uh, from making the investment and they're not. So they wouldn't necessarily take into account any of the positive externalities of the infrastructure project. They'd be making just a straight commercial assessment of, you know, do we make a, a return that meets, you know, our requirements of our shareholders and enables us to pay down, you know, debt that we might use to fund the project. So you can't talk about PPPs without also talking about transferring the risk. So as soon as government steps away from a fully delivered government project and brings the private sector in, there has to be some measure at transfer of some of the risks of the project to the private sector to accompany the reward that they get from the revenue streams that a concession might give to them as well. And it's very hard to, you know, to look at that. Often when you're looking at a PPP, governments will do behind the scenes a public sector comparator project, which is if they did the whole thing in-house, what what are the costs and benefits from a government perspective in mm. developing and delivering and operating the, the infrastructure project? And they'll often use that as, if you like, a baseline against which the negotiation with a private party you know, might uh, be involved with. The other thing, too, is that with some of these PPPs, there's also a procurement issue about creating enough commercial tension around a possible infrastructure transaction to drive the value for money. Uh, but it's also in the very careful design of the PPPs as well. And what we saw offshore with a major toll road in Canada was that the government in Ontario didn't actually specify tightly enough the rise and fall clause in the toll revenues. And in fact, um, in the PPP agreement, uh, a major investment bank was actually given the authority to change the level of the toll. So, of course, they what they did was that they were increasing it, you know, 10 15% a year for three or four years and were making huge returns off it. And it, it, it actually turned into quite a protracted legal battle, yes. which the government over there actually lost because because it's done in a commercial contract. All parties went in with their eyes wide open and the court basically found it was a legally enforceable contract. Of course, for the investment bank, the issue is, well, your social licence to operate, you know, the ability to keep working with governments uh, depends mm. upon... The, you know, the if you like, the political economy antenna that you have as well. And uh, they did actually moderate the, the toll increases after, after that. But that wasn't because they were contractually constrained from doing that. So there are, are risks in the uh, PPP model. The other thing mm. is that often it's very hard to see what the contingent risks are. What happens if your counterparty uh, falls over? And we saw that with the Melbourne Metropolitan Train 
uh, franchising where one of the uh, franchise uh, operators uh, decided because they weren't making they were making losses that they actually walked away from the franchise and they oh, left a, right. a they, they left a twenty million dollar bond with the state government but it took a couple of hundred million dollars for the state government to bring in a new operator so yes. this is where the risk assessment of these infrastructure projects suddenly becomes a little bit more more critical yeah. So historically, oh, sorry, Craig, I was just thinking, I mean, historically governments have implemented these PPPs, so they've seen it as a way of, well, one, it, it meant that they didn't have to, uh, you know, build the road themselves and, uh, you know, borrow the money for that. They could get a private sector operator to do that. They do it on their books and, uh, you know, they the way that they make it work is they, they allow the private sector operate to, operator to levy a toll. It may have been difficult for governments to do that. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, that's one of the reasons they may have done it. Uh, there's also arguments about efficiency. Arguably, it could, you know, the private sector could run these things more efficiently, the, these assets. But you're saying that, look, there are a whole range of risks involved with PPP, so you need to uh, tread very carefully going into them. Is that a fair assessment? I think so, and I think that there has to be a separate consideration of the the merit of doing the project or not. Mm. That's independent. It's it's one of those situations where you want to say, does this project inherently create net a net economic benefit for an economy? And then, if if the answer to that is yes, then you then look and say, in some circumstances, you may not be able to generate the user revenue to actually fund the project. So then it becomes what are our funding options and a PPP is then an option to, uh, you know, about about funding it. The evidence on um, private sector efficiency of infrastructure delivery is a bit mixed. Uh, so there have been some examples of privately delivered infrastructure that have, like, spectacularly blown out in, mm. in cost. I think in the in the infrastructure planning space, you know, there's a, a couple of sort of, if you like, best practice uh, planning and procurement lessons to sort of think about. And, you know, from what I've been looking at in terms of, you know, how do you plan infrastructure and, and how do you deliver it? I've sort of come across uh, five or six of them and, you know, they're, they're worth thinking about. The things like... The better infrastructure projects actually come from long-term planning frameworks and they've got robust business cases. So where you've actually got the environment, you know, the, the overall governance environment uh, that where people are taking long-term looks at infrastructure needs and they've got a solid business case process, those infrastructure projects tend to be a bit more successful. But the other thing is you still need really strong governance arrangements to drive the project delivery. And that's really around, you know, the uh, project management arrangements inside them. And, you know, we were talking before about PPPs and using that as a financing mechanism. And how you buy the project is also important. The procurement model has to be tailored to the type of infrastructure project you're going to build 
like you wouldn't do the same procurement model for a road as you would for, say, telecommunications facilities, basically because with most roads you don't have a revenue stream, whereas with a telecommunications facility you can actually fund the assets out of the user revenues. And another element is, you know, that we've been talking about is risk transfer. You yes. have to have the appropriate or commensurate transfer arrangement and recognise that you have different risk transfer arrangements for different projects. Um, and, you know, when you, when you look at it, sometimes you may only be able to transfer realistically certain types of risks to the private sector. Uh, you can attempt to transfer more and the private sector may accept them, but then you actually might have a contingent risk that the private sector takes it on and then if it, it doesn't work out, like the Metro Tram example, they walk away and you're still left with the risk. And the other two that I've sort of been thinking about are really around your environmental assessments and local management issues um, yes, because yes. they can really de derail uh, a lot of these infrastructure projects. And my final one that gets me time and again is that I always ask about, well, how do we do the post-project evaluation? How do we close the loop and learn? A lot of teams are formed to do the project scoping or do the initial design or do the build, but there's very little harvesting of lessons uh, from previous projects. And yes, um, yes. so often what you see is you see major infrastructure projects that don't work out in some aspect and that learning's not really translated across. It, it's difficult to have that kind of openness and, and honesty and, and to be able to drive uh, continuous improvement in the infrastructure industry across multiple project cycles or even from one type of infrastructure asset class to another. I, I think those five or six things really pull together, you know, issues that infrastructure decision makers need to, need to sort of have in the back of their mind. I just want to pick up on one of those points you made about the frameworks. So we have bodies in Australia such as Infrastructure Australia at the national level, at the state level we have Building Queensland, for example, are they good examples of what you're talking about? I think so. I think one of the advantages of having these kinds of bodies is that particularly for larger infrastructure projects, you get a body that's at arm's length from the, the agency that might have responsibility for the asset developing the business case. And so institutionally, it's, these business cases can be a little bit more dispassionate. And a lot mm. of large infrastructure agencies have in-house teams, in-house teams of economists, in-house teams of engineers, and they're running internal systems and processes. And sometimes that can actually act as a barrier to that last point I was making about being open to, to learn lessons. Whereas bodies like Infrastructure Australia or Building Queensland can actually bring people in on a project basis with the requisite skills. So if you're doing a road project in Queensland, somebody like Building Queensland could actually, when it's involved in the business case, bring in some experts from another jurisdiction 
to bring the technical knowledge, but without the political economy, so that there's a, a yeah a little bit more dispassionate. That, that's not to say that the infrastructure agencies aren't trying to you know manage properly manage portfolios of assets, but bringing that uh, fresh set of eyes, that, that little bit more independence in, mm. just simply sharpens that up a bit. Okay, very good. Final question, Craig. We've had a quite an extensive chat on infrastructure. There's just one more thing. I know that you've had experience within uh, emerging economies around the world, so both uh, in the Pacific and also, I think, in the Middle East, if I remember correctly. Yeah, are that's there, right. Are there particular issues facing emerging economies uh, that are different from advanced economies that it would be worth uh, raising, that it'd be worth that it'd be worth identifying. I think there's probably two that strike have struck me the most. One is just simply an institutional capacity issue. So, in um, in Australia, in most uh, jurisdictions, the level of technical competence is actually very high. It's world class, and mm. we're actually exporting engineering and design services globally and uh, we're also you know exporting professional services as well around finance and economic appraisal of infrastructure into other countries as, as well so mm. you you find that in developing countries the investment in the human capital side of the infrastructure story is still not strong enough and it, it's weak in in two ways one is it's weak in uh, around the decision-making processes to add new capital stock. Um, how, you know, how do we decide which infrastructure projects to do? And then the second aspect is really around once we've got um, a, set, a set of infrastructure assets, how do we actually hang on to the service level and the, the service delivery out of that? How do we maintain and rehabilitate those assets to get the full design life out of them? Um, behind that is the the issue of there is, in a lot of developing countries, there are far more projects that are worth doing than, than there is funding available. Yes, uh, yes. And so there's a tendency not to do the front-end appraisal because it feels like any project you could do would be a good project. Uh, the issue is not seeing the funding envelope if you see the funding envelope, what you want to do is you want to find the best set of projects to do inside that funding envelope. So yeah. the paradox is that the issues of economic appraisal, financial feasibility, become much, much more critical in developing countries uh, for, that, for that reason. Yes, yes. The other thing is just around the political economies and the institutional settings. Uh, so... You know, in Australia, because we've got, a, you know, a federation of states and we've got, you know, local, state, federal government systems, we've got independent statutory authorities, there's, there's a lot of different oversights around infrastructure, whether it's, you know, from environmental, whether it's social impact, whether it's, you know, the a budget assessment, uh, you know, on agencies. There's a lot of eyes on every infrastructure project. In developing countries, there's just simply not that level of scrutiny. And so you can get projects that look good, but 
it may not be fully beneficial. And uh, I know that uh, with uh, donors from other countries wanting to give funds to a developing country, it's very hard for a developing country to say no. But what we are seeing is that a number of these countries are now looking and saying, actually, the scale of the infrastructure project that's being proposed, we don't want to take out that level of borrowing for that because we don't feel that the level of demand is actually going to be met. And so we're not actually going to be able to properly repay the loan that's being offered to us. You know, thanks for all the money, but um, you know, we'll actually build this project in stages rather than do the one big project with the one big piece of financing. So you're seeing a few African countries knocking back uh, donors on that. The other thing is that you have a geopolitical issue around infrastructure because uh, some infrastructure is actually uh, critical infrastructure to the, the economic development and the national security of um, some of these countries and also as potentially strategic assets within a region. Uh, so when you build a port and suddenly that has a potential uh, defence implication around it as well. And um, what we're seeing is with uh, telecommunications and with uh, port infrastructure that there's a lot more sensitivity now around building those assets or even transferring the ownership of them. Uh, because the issues of control and, you know, if you if you if a donor provides financing, the country can't repay. The donor can take effective control of the port, uh, which is what um, China did in Sri Lanka. Um, mm. And you know, the strategic implication of that is that it potentially uh, gives the uh, Chinese navy uh, port access in the uh, Indian Ocean, which it, it didn't have before. So often there's another overlay uh, on top of just the, the, uh, the economic issues and uh, the developing countries have a less robust way of, they're less robust in terms of being able to push back on those sorts of things. Sure. I think, yeah, very good point, Craig. And I mean, there are a couple of examples here in Australia. I mean, we, uh, the Australian government uh, won't let uh, Huawei into the uh, 5G network for example, and I remember there was that controversy about Darwin Port a year or so ago. Uh, I think the Americans were a bit unhappy. We uh, we allowed it to be sold to a was it a Chinese company that ended up buying it? Yeah, they took out a long term lease. Uh, the interesting thing about that is that with the um, US being based up there uh, with that Marine Battalion, ah, uh, yes. they're, they're they're actually making their own. Um, uh, port infrastructure investments separate to the Port of Darwin uh, to support uh, the, uh, the logistics needs of the Marines that are based there. So uh, you can see from a defence perspective, the US government's looked and said, well, we're not happy about running mm. our Marine uh, battalion logistics through Port of Darwin. You know, we see that as right. a, a strategic risk for us. And so my understanding from you know, public reporters that uh, they're looking to sink a lot of money into some separate wharves and uh, port-related infrastructure for the uh, Marine Battalion. Right. Wow. That's uh, that's very interesting. 
Oh, well, we've covered a lot of uh, ground, Craig. Uh, I think we've got a couple of topics for future podcasts. I think PPPs and also... <laughs> I certainly think so. I guess I, I guess you can get a sense uh, from me that uh, infrastructure is something that uh, is a huge passion of mine, and um, seeing it in all shapes and forms in Australia and in the Solomons and in Papua New Guinea, and and also um, seeing it in in the Middle East, where uh, to a certain extent money's not actually an object uh, mm-hmm. to build things. Uh, it's quite fascinating just to see the sort of the diversity around uh, how it's designed and thought up and, and delivered. Absolutely. Craig Lawrence, thanks for your time. Thanks very much, Jake.